Well, thank you for allowing me the privilege of uh, sharing about that work. Like I say, if you are interested, you can follow along. We run a daily blog as well. We're on the uh, on the mission. You know, one of the things that struck me as we were out on the mission field, particularly in Ghana, is that around 75% of the people would say they're Christian. About 25 would say they're Muslim. But both groups claim that they're going to heaven. You know that? If I ask them, I ask a Muslim, are you going to heaven? Oh, yeah. Are you going to heaven? Yeah. All the Christians, are you going to heaven? Yeah. You're a Christian? Yes. What does that mean? Well, you know, and generally, though, what I find is they don't actually understand the true gospel. They have parts of it that they believe and understand, but they don't have the full gospel. And so I was thinking about that, and, um, well, just recently we were at the funeral the other night, and one of the brothers, one of the passages they were reading from was 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 which really deals uh, with the resurrection and why the resurrection really is pretty critical, isn't it, um, to the gospel message. And it, it was written in response to some false teaching that there really wasn't a bodily resurrection. And so I think what we'll do is we'll read some of this, but um, I noticed one thing that we heard at the, um, well, at the funeral, I heard, you know, the brother was talking about hope, but... I want to qualify the word hope because sometimes when we think of hope, it's kind of like this. Well, I hope I'll get there. I'm pretty sure I might. You know, your eyes are kind of open, but they're not really open. But when the Bible talks about hope, it, it's a done deal, okay? It's, uh, you know, sometimes you can say you can bank on it. Well, it's actually better than the bank because it's God who makes the claim. The God who cannot lie promises eternal life to whoever believes. I mean, you heard different verses, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have, is it conditional life? or something? No, it's eternal life, isn't it? Right? And so when we look at this section, let's read some verses together. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brothers at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me, also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And of course, it goes on from that, and he basically says this, um, verse 13, But if there, is, uh, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then uh, our preaching is vain or worthless. It's, it's hopeless then, right? If there's no resurrection, 
then we're following a myth and it's all good for nothing. But he goes on to say, it's a fact. That's the idea here. It's a fact. It's a fact. He continually says this. So, um, what is the saving gospel or you know, a gospel that can really save you? Well, the first question, what is this word gospel that we talk about? You know, when I came back from Ireland, I think it was in 2008, but often when I talk to people in Ireland, I said, have you ever heard the gospel? Usually they do one of these. Oh, the gospel. I go, well, you know, obviously you haven't heard it then, right? And they go, like, what do you know? We know the gospel. We've had it over the top. And I said, well, that doesn't even make sense. And they would say, like, what do you mean it doesn't make sense? We've heard it. And we've heard it, and we've heard it. And I said, well, technically, and I'll just look at that, the dictionary defines the gospel as this. It's derived from the Anglo-Saxon word, which meant the story concerning God. Okay? In the New Testament, the Greek word, and I can't even pronounce it here, eugelion, which means good news. It proclaims tidings of deliverance. Okay? The very word itself, it just means unbelievable great news. And so, I mean, if you're a sports fan and somebody said, hey, did you hear the news? Miami Heat won. And, you, and that's your team. You're, you're going to go, oh, man, Miami Heat. We hear that all the time. Miami Heat won. Okay. Now, if you're another, if you're another team, maybe you'd say that. But you want to hear that because it's good news to you, right? And um, within that, it reminded me of a story of a guy named Dave that I picked up hitchhiking in your car. Have you ever want a captive audience? That's actually a really good way of having them. They usually don't jump out while you're driving and, you know, you get a good opportunity to share the gospel. And so I had Dave in the car and I started to talk to him. I said, Dave, do you believe in God? Yeah, I do, actually. I'm, uh, I'm Roman Catholic, he said to me. And, and so we started driving along and I said, uh, I said, do you like, oh, he says, I love church and, I, and so on. I said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, Dave, do you know the gospel? He says, yeah, absolutely. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I said, well, no. Those are books which sometimes contain the gospel. I said, but you know, you know the, the word gospel, and I, sent, I gave him that explanation, it just simply means good news or great news. I said, can you tell me the gospel according to uh, what you believe? And so he went on and he said, well, yeah, sure, sure, I can tell you. you know, and he basically said, well, you, know, you go to church. And he talked about the churches and the stained glass and all that stuff. I said, well, that's kind of neat. I said, no, what's good about that? Well, he said, you know, it's beautiful. And I said, okay, yeah, but what else? You know, and so he went on, he went on. And uh, when he finished, I said, well, Dave, what you're saying to me? Like you're telling me if I go to church and stuff that one day, you know, I might see God. Is that what you're saying really in effect? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, Dave, that, you know, honestly, that doesn't sound like really good news. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I have an atheist friend. And you know what he says to me? He says, well, I don't really believe in God. And, you know, of course, Dave commented, oh, he's an idiot. I said, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I said, but, you know, um, I said, but Dave, you know what he says to me? He says this. He says that, uh, and, you know, if there is a God, because I live a good life, and at the end of the day, as long as I, you know, follow, you know, the golden rule, as, as it were, by living a good life, if there is a God, he's going to let me in anyway. And I said, Dave, you kind of said the same thing, didn't you? And he said, well, you know, we went on. He said, but not really, but... You know, I said, well, actually, Dave, really, that's what you said. He said, you have to do your bit in order to get right with God. And he said, well, that's, that's true. You, that, you know, you definitely have to do that. 
And I said, Dave, that doesn't really sound like good news. I said, are you certain right now that you go to heaven? He said, yes. I said, Dave, are you really certain? He said, well, I think so. And uh, I said, now, Dave, honestly, you just said now you think so. So what is it? You're sure you think so? He said, well, hopefully. I said, Dave, it's getting worse as we're talking. You know, I said, but listen, if something is really good news, like really good news, you should want to know about it. I said, well, let me give you an illustration, Dave. I said, this is kind of what I'm hearing from you. Is that you're going into a store, and um, I'm behind you, okay? And you're going in to buy a lottery ticket. And so you're going there, and you're about to buy a lottery ticket. And I say, hey, Dave, how's it going? Yeah, you're going to buy a lottery ticket. You know, I said, oh, that's good, that's good. I said, Dave, I got some wonderful good news for you. And you say, hey, what's that, what's that? And I say, Dave, guess what? You could win the lottery. And he looks at me and goes, well, what's good about that? I said, well, that's right. You're going in to buy a ticket anyway, right? So if, if I tell you you could win, well, you're thinking, well, hopefully I could win or I wouldn't be spending my money on the lottery ticket, right? I said, there's nothing really good about it. It's okay, right? But it's nothing good about it. But Dave, if I told you this, you have won the lottery. I know their number. You picked your number and you've won it. That's a little different, isn't it? He said, well, yeah, that is. And I said, you know, that's what the gospel is, Dave. It tells you this, and I quoted 1 John 5.13. It says this, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life who believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. I said, that's what the gospel is. And I said, Dave, for what you have, you have religion. It's a bit different. And so he said, well, what do you mean? So let's just look at this, this idea. You know, and this is the problem, is many people assume that God has done his part and you have to do your part. I talked to a nun once. Uh, I was in, preaching in Dublin Square. And at the end of it, I started talking to her. And she had a lot of truth. And she was living, you know, really a godly life in a lot of ways. But, you know, the bottom line, when I got to her, we started talking about the nuts and bolts of the gospel. In other words, what is it that you're really trusting? And you know what she said? Well, Jesus has done his 95% but I have to do my 5%. And I said, you know, the 5% is going to cause you to go to hell. And she said, oh, well, how can you say that? I said, well, I'm not. That's what God says. You see, it's faith alone in Christ alone that can save you. There's nothing good in us, right? If you think that you're part of the, of the picture, you've got it wrong. And I hope that's not the case for you today, that you understand this. Now, Let's look at this. Go back to 15 in uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. So it says, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which, you are, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So first of all, in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that... Christ. So first of all, it talks about a person. Okay? You know, I talked to a guy. I said, look, you're a nice guy. You really love that girl. Yeah. I said, you know, you'd probably be even willing to die for her, wouldn't you? And he said, yeah, I would. I would. And I said, you know, then sometimes we get this idea with the gospel that if, as long as I'm really, really good or I can pay for someone else's sin, I said, you can't. The bottom line is this. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what God says, right? You either believe it or you don't. But that's what he said. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, right? So he tells us that we're underneath this judgment of God. He says all of us have sinned and fallen short of it. 
So first of all, um, within the gospel, we need to have a person, but what kind of person can save you? Well, he has to be a perfect person, can he? No one else can qualify because they'd have to pay for their own. I said, if you wanted to pay for hers, the problem is, is you're a sinner. You've got to pay for your own first and then there's nothing left, right? And so first of all, um, the only kind of person that can save is a sinless person. One who would uh, qualify. Well, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you see, he knew no sin, he did no sin. So the Lord Jesus has the qualifications of the right person, doesn't he? Because he's sinless. He's the sinless son of God. But the second part of it must be that he must be willing. Right? Um, but we know he is. Isn't it great? You know, even this morning, if you were here for the Lord's Supper, we can see his love for people. Uh, you know, Isaiah 50 is often, uh, it says this in 50 and verse 6, it says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I should not, shall not be ashamed. You know, Luke's Gospel in chapter 22, verse 42, it says this, uh, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, uh, God the Father would say, in him it my soul delights, right? Uh, you remember at the baptism of John, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because he knew no sin. And the great news is this, is that he's willing to die on your behalf, isn't he? I mean, he fits the criteria that he is a perfect person. But there's so often people get it totally wrong here. They believe as long as they know the person and then they try and do their bit to, to uh, perform. But um, Well, Scripture tells us this uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16 that God was made known in human flesh. Or in other words, he was manifested. He came and dwelt among us. And we also say, well, how did he demonstrate his power? Well, you know, go through Matthew, go through any of the Gospels, and you can see again and again and again how he showed who he was by what he did, by raising the dead. Uh, you remember there, John the Baptist, what is it, Matthew 11, um, he's in jail. Now, John the Baptist got the program a little wrong, okay? Because you remember in Matthew 3, He's thinking that the Messiah is coming to set up his kingdom. That's really how he's proclaiming. He's going to judge with fire and so on. And so now he's in prison. Well, one of the ideas of the uh, Messiah was to set the captives free. So here he is in prison, and I'm not sure. He, it seems like he, he got the program a little wrong. And so he says to his disciples, you go and see who, you know, ask him who he is. And so the disciples come, and what did the Lord Jesus say? You tell them what you see, the deaf hear, the blind see, and so on. And, the, and when he comes back, you never hear anything more from John, so it seemed to be enough to settle him. But he, he was known by what he did, proved who he was. You know, Mark's gospel, he proved he had power over demons. If you were here on Wednesday night, Rob reminded us in uh, Mark 2, you remember what's harder to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? but that you may know that I have power to forgive sins, rise up and walk. Right? This is a guy who is paralyzed. They lowered him through the roof. Um, 
He had power even over death itself. Do you remember a dead girl? Do you remember the story of Lazarus? And you, you, know, you can see the hardness of people's heart. Do you remember the story with Lazarus? He raises him back to life. Then they're down there and they're talking. Of course, there'd be pretty good stir if you knew somebody had died and now he's back to life. And of course, that's what they were saying. Man, now everybody's going to believe. What do we need to do? Let's kill him again. <laughs> that's really what they said. Which is pretty ironic, isn't it? But that's what they're thinking. Instead of just turning to God. So firstly, we have to, you know, it, it involves a person. It's not a religion. Secondly, the power of the person or his performance that he's able to forgive sins. can't just be anybody. And then thirdly, it has to involve prophecy. Now, it's interesting when you think about prophecy. This is the really the thing that, that won me to the Lord was the fact that, you know, in the Bible, all the prophecies that uh, were written in the future have come true, 100% accurate, all the way through that. Um, well, just think, I mean, can you imagine if someone predicted maybe last year uh, the Super Bowl winner, Miami Dolphins? No, not them, I don't think. But, you know, let's say they predicted that, right? The winner, you'd say, wow, that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty impressive. But can you imagine 500 years ago when there never was any, no one even heard of what football was? And they said, well, actually, you know, in such and such a year, this is what's going to happen. You'd say, come on, that's possible and yet that's exactly what happens you know the prediction that he would die on a cross you know it was written before crucifixion was invented for instance and there's so many prophecies concerning um, the son of God that are written in the scripture that came through a hundred percent accurate and so therefore any future prophecies you can be guaranteed they'll be accurate as well and so this is, to me, one of the key things. So it's uh, under the letter P. We know it's a person and the power of the person and also according to prophecy. But you know what? There's a lot of people that believe all three of those things. There are people that I've talked to. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes. Although often here, if you really start questioning them, and you say, do you believe the Bible is true? They'll maybe say yes. You start pushing a little further, you often find that, well, I know some of it's true. But maybe some of it isn't so true, you know? Um, but you can know all three of those things and still be as lost as it can be. Now, the reason is, why is that? Well, the fourth aspect of the, of the gospel is really this. It's, it's the promise or taking God at his word. For instance, I've talked to many people who believe all that, and I say, are you saved? And you know what they say? Well, I hope so. And so I usually say something like this, are you married? And they go, yeah, or no. I go, are you sure? <laughs> I say, or do you hope so? I mean, some guys may say, I hope so. I hope I will get married. But that's not what I, what's meant by that. You know, the idea is you know. I had a guy once who said that. I said, are you a man or, or a woman? He said, well, I'm a man. I said, are you sure? Got really ready to hit me, you know, and I said, look, I said, you know you are, right? I said, shouldn't you know that you're going to heaven or you're not? If you don't know, chances are very good you're not going. And, you know, I'd ask him, well, can God lie? Well, no, he can't lie. Okay, well, that's good. He can't lie. And so he says this, all that come to me, I'll in no wise cast out. That's what he says, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will hope, no, it says actually, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, I believe that. 
So therefore I can tell you I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm saved because he saved me. But more often than not, this is the problem, is people do not believe that. They don't have the fourth aspect of this, which just is believing in the promise of God. You see, what did it say about Abraham back in? The quotation is back to Genesis 15, okay? Remember, Paul uses it as an argument in in, um, Romans chapter 4, dealing with the idea of justification, okay? And he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. This is the idea of faith. Faith and saving faith, okay? It means simply this, taking God at what he says. Believing him. You see, because unbelief does not believe God. Unbelief stands there, it's kind of like someone, he's he's out in the water, you know? And, uh, you know, the water's pretty deep and he's holding on to something right here. And you come to rescue him and, uh, you know, he's grabbing with one hand. You say, well, you've got to let go. I am letting go. Meanwhile, he's down here holding. But true faith lets go. It trusts God. That's the idea. You know, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, it says this, Examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Know you not that Jesus Christ is in you. And he says, do you know that? If you don't know that, it says you're disqualified or you missed the mark. That's the idea. And no one can do that for you. It's not a test what your mom can do for you, your dad or a friend or a neighbor. You, between you and God. And, you know, I've been to meetings like this where everyone, you know, I've been to some meetings where everybody, they get upset because I'm not wearing a jacket, you know. Everybody has the right gear on. But it doesn't mean you're saved. You see, God sees inside, inside the heart. He knows where you're at. Let's go over to Matthew 15 for a minute. Just to try and look at this idea of faith and unbelief. What time is it normally at? One o'clock? Good, thank you. That was a very quick answer. Matthew chapter um, 15. Let's look at Matthew 15. It says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? You see, what they were doing is uh, they would set aside, um, they were supposed to give money, look after their relatives, okay, for their parents in particular. And what they would do is they would take the money and they'd say, Well, I'm going to give it to God later in an inheritance. And so that way they could get out of paying money. And so what they were doing is they were twisting and tweaking really the true word of God, and then they were adding to the word of God their own traditions. You know, the Jewish people have 613 commandments. You know that? How would you like to try and obey them? Besides that, they have thousands of laws. And so he, he sits there and he, he sort of comes at them and he says to them in uh, verse, where is it, 7, You hypocrites, well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying this, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I've talked to people that say all the right stuff. Are you saved? Yes, I've, I've been saved. I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I asked Him in my heart. I'm not sure where they find that, but that's what they say. But they're not saved. I'm only asking you this. Are you trusting in the person of Christ? Did He die for your sins? Or are you trusting in something that you can do? Because if it's something of you, it's not of God then. 
He has to do all the saving. You know, I remember one brother, and I, I love what he said. He said, you know, God has done his part, and I must do my part. I thought, whoa, whoa wait a minute. I knew him. I thought, that's kind of strange he'd even say that. And he said, yes, God does all the saving, and I do all the sinning. And I said, okay, I can get that. <laughs> I can follow that way. You know, what Jesus starts to point out here is the problem, actually, it's a heart problem. You know, Jeremiah puts it this way, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? That's what he's describing, our own human heart. Most of us think, well, I'm not that bad. That's what you get from people, don't you? If you were to ask them, are, are you good? Usually they'll say this, I'm a Christian. You know why they're saying Christian? Because in their mind, a Christian means someone who's pretty good. That's why I say, well, what does that mean to you by saying you're a Christian? Do you mean that you live a pretty moral and good life? And they usually will say something, yeah, and you've been God. That makes you a Christian. I say, well, actually... True Christian simply means a follower of Jesus, right? In other words, if he says you need to wear a blue shirt, put on a red one, right? If you follow him, you know. And uh, he tells us you must be born again. When did that happen for you? Usually they're not sure on that part of it. Um, let's just quickly look at this. So as you go through um, chapter 15, of course, he says to them, they teach... Um, they worship me in vain. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men and so on. And so he sort of blasts them. He tells them basically that their hearts weren't good. They're saying, well, they are good. And he's saying, well, actually, no, you need a new one. Your old heart, can now, you can't clean it up. It's not going to work. You need a new heart. And often this is part of the problem. People think they're spiritual. Why? Well, I've been baptized. I go to church. I say my prayers. Or I don't know if you heard Rob talking about Cindy. You know, Rob was living a life that wasn't... Uh, he wasn't living a Christian life in front of her. And he'd say to her, You know, Cindy, if God comes back, I'm going and so are the girls. And she'd say, If you're going, I'm going for sure. You know, because he was such a rotter. But that's the way people think. It's based on your performance. But, you know, the idea with that is there's none good, no, not one. Right? We're all like an unclean thing. That's why we need a Savior. And so he, he reminds them really of two truths in this portion. We don't have time to look at everything because he goes on to that. But he says this, being religious really doesn't make you spiritual. Um, you know, hell is going to be filled with people that have gone to church, right? There's all kinds of churches out there. There's churches that are preaching the gospel that have people in there that aren't saved that think by being there and doing, you know, being baptized and following through with all the church programs that they're in. But they won't be in. You know, because they've never had that new birth. Um, we heard one of the girls quoting John 14, right? In my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. He goes on to say, Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way in. It's through Him. Well, just at the end of this, I want to just bring this up. You remember this? We, we see the idea here is he uses her as an example, really. At the end of this, it says he goes to the coast of Tyre and Sidon and he meets this uh, woman of Canaan. She comes out of the, the same coast and cries to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, you son of David. My daughter is grievous, grievously vexed with a, with a demon. And uh, so we see this woman and he calls this woman has great faith. And uh, it's interesting as, as you look at this, first of all, she's using a kingly title for him. She had no rights because she wasn't a Jew. And he, he points that out. At first, he doesn't even answer her. 
So then she approaches him on the basis of the fact that he's the creator of all things. And he answers her, it seems pretty rough, doesn't it? He says, um, it's not good for, to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs or little... little and she's, she doesn't even roll with that. She says, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. See, she's persistent... Because she's exercising faith. She knows he's the guy. He's the one who can save me. right? He's the one who can help my daughter. And so he says at the end of this, O woman, great is your faith. Now turn back to Exodus. I just want to look at the difference really between faith and unbelief. You see, because unlike... Uh, the Pharisees, unlike her, they saw it all. They heard it all. They saw miracle after miracle from him, but they're not right with God. And you remember the story, uh, where is it, Exodus 15. They just come out of uh, the children of Israel. They're going to the promised land. They just come across the, um, the Red Sea and they sing the song of, of Moses. Maybe we should actually turn there for a second. Exodus 15. Just to see how they respond which is pretty amazing. They start talking about how how great God is, right? They said uh, in this, you know, so they're singing this um, song. It says, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. I'm reading from verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown them, rose up against them. Verse 10, you did blow with your wind. Verse 11, who is like you? Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. Verse 13, you in your mercy have led forth the people which you have redeemed. And it goes on to say this, and you're going to win all the victories in the future for us. That's really what they're stating, okay? Verse 16, fear and dread shall fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They shall be as a stone. Well, that sounds good. They're all there. They all see it. They all sing this song. The very next chapter, chapter 16 It says this, um, now they they don't have any water. It says, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They said, man, we're going to die. We've got no water. Um, Actually, I think it's at the, yeah, sorry, the end of uh, verse chapter 15. They come to this place called Merah, which just means bitter, right? So the water was, there's something wrong. The water is poisonous. And it's interesting that uh, how does he remedy that? He says he cast in a tree, right? It's really a picture, isn't it, of the cross? And it says the waters were made sweet. And so then again they murmur and they murmur all the way through this. They keep doing this again and again. Because why? They're filled with unbelief. This guy's never believed. Um, Turn over to the book of Numbers, Numbers 13. And you remember we talked about that. We sing the song, the 12 spies went out into the land and so on. And if you're reading uh, Numbers 13, it says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send you men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel of every tribe of their fathers. Shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them? Now if you just read that account and you didn't read the account in Deuteronomy, you might think that God, that was part of God's plan to send them out. But I'll tell you this, it wasn't God's plan. It was because of their own hardness of heart that God allowed them to take 12 men and use them, one from each tribe, as, uh, to go in and spy out the land. You remember, they were singing this song, how God was going to already win all these battles and so on. And God had already promised them through Moses, right, that you're going to have this land which flows in milk and wa- with uh, milk and honey back in 
Exodus chapter 3. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is what you read. And I said to you, you are come to the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord your God does give to us. Behold, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has said to you, fear not, neither be dismayed, uh, neither be discouraged. And then it says this, and you all came near to me, every one of you, and said, we will send out men before us and they will search out the land and bring us words. In other words, we want to know if you're really telling the truth, God. But, you know, true faith believes God. It takes God at what he says. And uh, go back to uh, Numbers 13. It's interesting. You know the story. I'm, I'm assuming that most of you know this story. So the 12 spies go out. The best one from each of the tribes. It's interesting that you know, some of the names of the, of the guys who are leading the tribe are, are things like He Redeems, Salvation, um, My Deliverance, God is My Fortune, My Kinsman is God. And so even in their very names, it talks about God saving them and redeeming them. And yet they didn't really believe, did they? Well, you know the story. And I'm not sure what the tie-in, but you know, Caleb's name means dog. Eh? You know that. That's kind of interesting. Um, but uh, as you go through this, and you get to uh, Numbers 14, you remember, because they go in, they see, hey, this is unbelievable. Grapes are the size of grapefruits, and man, this is unbelievable. But there's giants in the land, right? And so they come back, it says, uh, they said, hey, what did you see? They were down there for 40 days, you remember? Uh, where is it? Verse 27. And, it's, and they told them, and they said, we came to a land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and there's fruit in it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. You know, these giants. And they go on and says, the Amalekites dwell there, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. These are all ones who they said with their lips, God's going to deliver us. But Caleb, he was also there, right? It says he stilled the people before Moses. And you know what he says? Hey, let's go up at once. Hey, it's ours. What are you talking about? It's ours. Let's go up at once and possess it for we're well able to overcome it. Now, of course, they weren't too happy with that. And uh, this is what they say in verse 32. It says, you know, the people there, it's a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof and all the people that we saw there are men of great stature. There we saw giants. Now, uh, it says, the sons of Anak which came out, um, come out of the giants and they were in our own sight. We're, we're like grasshoppers. God, you're like, I'm sorry, but you're a grasshopper. You know, you can't beat those guys. That's how they're seeing this. And it, to me, it's just, and it says this in verse 14, and all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night, which sounds good, but they're weeping and they're crying for the wrong reason. We see that in verse 2. It says they murmured then against them. And then on top of that, verse 3, you know what it says? And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword? And then he goes on. They not only say that, but they now start blaming God that, God, you're going to actually wipe out our wives and our kids. That's what you're going to do. And it says, Wherefore the Lord brought us into the land that our wives and our children should be a prey. And of course, you know, uh, from that, then of course, Moses, or sorry, um, Joshua and Caleb, they start getting before God and, and they, of course, remind them, you know, if God delights in us, He'll bring us into land and give it to us. He says, don't rebel against the Lord. 
For, you know, these people, they're bred for us. Their defense is departed for them because God is with us. You see, that's what faith does. It realizes there's no problem. God's with us. But unbelief sees all the problems, right? And we're like that. We're filled with unbelief a lot of times. You know God can do it, but you're thinking, well, maybe He can't. I'm just thinking in other areas of life. And then, the sad thing is, they're going to kill Him. Well, what does God do in, this, in, in regards to this? Well, you remember the story. Actually, none of those guys came into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. But, you know, because of what they said, the kids got in, because why? They said that they're going to get wiped out. And so there's a cost factor in unbelief, isn't there? They all lost their lives over it. Now, what, do, what can we gain with this whole idea? You know, if we simply take God at what He says, put our trust in Him. Maybe you're here today and I don't know what, where you're at. You, you've, uh, you've walked around claiming that you, you have true faith in Him. But maybe, just maybe you're not saved. I don't know. God knows, doesn't He? And you know in your own heart whether you're right with God. And maybe you're here, you say, well, I am saved. But are you walking by faith? Do you see things in light of that? Are you like Caleb and Joshua in spite of everyone else coming at them? They saw that the victory was already theirs. That they, they had won it. You know, I mean, the Scripture says what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he says, right? Let's just close in order of prayer. Lord, we do thank You so much for Your Word and uh, we think of these men of God like Joshua and Caleb and help us to be like them, Lord. Help us to walk in faith. Uh, you think of the man there who Jesus said, uh, all things can be done to, the, to him who believes. And He said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And sometimes we're like that. Lord, help us in the areas of unbelief. Help us just to cast our care to You. Let me just pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen.